0: welcome back to the service design podcast in this episode we're speaking with john powell design director at hypergiant an agency focused on artificial intelligence we enjoyed john's talk about social challenges that humans created over the years and how designers need to take their responsibility we were glad to have the opportunity to talk to john about his talk
1: We're here at the Global Service Design Conference in Toronto, and we are speaking in a second with John Powell from Hypergiant, and we actually just attended his talk, so we have a lot of questions to dive deeper into uh, into the topic he was speaking about. But John, could you maybe first introduce yourself to the listeners?
2: Yeah, hi. As was mentioned, my name is uh, John Powell, and I am a design director at Hypergiant, in Austin, Texas. And Hypergiant is an an artificial intelligence and machine learning consultancy.
1: Great. And uh, what was your talk about? So it's something I've
2: been interested in recent years, specifically about the human and environmental impact of product design or digital design or interaction design, whatever you want to call it, but or in broader terms in the tech industry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What I found really interesting is that we're always saying like making things digital makes it so much better for environment, but you raised some uh, question marks there that actually it has a big impact on the environment, like the production of digital products. Are there some more things uh, you touched upon the social and the psychological impact, especially on younger people? Can you tell a little bit more about uh, what you said during your talk?
2: Yeah. As I started looking into this, the, the, so the environmental impact is one of the first things that when I started questioning this, that, that hit me. One thing I did mention, actually, I talked about the, the Bougang Rare Earth Mineral Complex, but there was another one that surprised Like I went down this rabbit hole of like, you know, our websites and apps uh, environmentally friendly from, say, a power perspective, right? And what you discover is that the data centers that power all of these services use an enormous amount of fuel, some of which is... Powered by car uh, by coal and and or or gas generators to provide all that electricity and so and we don't we don't see that right we just assume that this website isn't hurting the environment because it's just on a screen and that surprised me then that led me to looking at other problems regarding how it affects us as uh, as humans because again we assume that an app you know is a fleeting thing and it can't hurt anybody and. In recent years, there there have been a lot of studies on this about the psychological effects of addiction to apps and services, and the effects of staring at our screens all day. and, and I think we've all experienced this. We, you know, we we've all, as you know, I'm I'm 43, and I, I have an eight month old son. And you know, when I was younger, I would laugh that off about you know all those old people are worried about or just they just don't get it sort of thing. But now there actually is some truth to the impact that. Living our lives in these digital environments has on us, given that we we evolved to be social creatures. And and I'm sure we've all experienced, like on, for example, on email and Slack or instant messaging, how much nuance gets lost and how many disagreements erupt from these platforms in which we can't use our, our physical understanding of someone when communicating. You can't look at someone in the eyes and talk to them. And so jokes get lost in translation and people get their feelings hurt. And that bleeds into how we discuss things as a society. I mean, you look at the, I mean, we're in a very polarized political environment in the United States, and that's made even worse by the effects that digital technologies have on our communications. And so so that was sort of the circuitous route that I, I went on as I started to look into this. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned some generations getting addicted to, to digital services, mm-hmm. that's from a business point of view, that makes a lot of sense, of course. Of course. And as, as designers, we do try to balance design, uh, user needs, and business. You were making a case about where to place that balance. Could you go into that in a bit more detail?
2: You know, I wish I had a, a, an easy answer for that. It's actually the thing I struggle with the most. I mentioned uh, Interaction 18. I always get the number of 18 or 19. Anyway, it was the Interaction Design Conference that was in Lyon. And I was surprised by the number of people there talking about this uh, how design has lost its balance within that that triumvirate of people technology and business and you know design has fought for many many years to have a seat at the table with business right we've worked very hard to show businesses the value and the power of design and that's good that's a good thing but it seems that we worked so hard to do that and in order to do that we cozied up to business. We had to quite a lot to prove our worth, to prove that we can make money for businesses and that sort of thing. But now what's happened though, is that a bit of Stockholm syndrome has, has I'm not sure that's really the right one, but it, you know, it, it, we've, we've become a little too close to business. And now you see things where people are evaluating designs based on ROI and KPIs and that sort of thing. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I think that sometimes that's discussed at the expense of human impact. And I don't think we've done a very good job now as designers helping businesses understand that there are other forms of value besides just money and numbers, that there are more qualitative things that we should be focusing on that uh, that that design can bring to business and humanize business, really, which I think is based on what we see in, in the environment and in, in media right now is Desperately needed. Yeah, I think indeed uh,
0: design started very much from a, a designing from the gut point. Yeah. Um, and we've transitioned to using data to, to make a business case, which for is design good, right? Yeah. Which is good indeed. But yeah, when it becomes only data, Uh, driven. Uh, Yeah. I think uh, you forget the human part.
2: Yeah. And well, and also I think it, and that leads us to a situation where designers just don't say no anymore. I mean, I, and I'll be, I mean, I've been in that situation myself. Uh, I've worked for my share of corporations that, and I've been asked to do things and, and build things that um, were uh, intended to manipulate people into paying for stuff and, 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 um, and uh, to, to do things that the business wanted. and, you know, at the and and, the, and on the surface, those things don't seem negative. It's not. I, I don't. I'm not here to say that designers are evil or that anyone, uh, that everyone is is, is has nefarious ends. But I just think that we we just we just don't shine a hard light on on the effect that those designs have uh, or or uh, the effect that uh, the work has on our end users. Um, you know, we when when the when the when the client is happy. We get paid and we're happy, and then everyone goes home and and doesn't think twice about it. And I guess the question is now: is, is that enough? Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm getting a sense that from people I talk to and uh, my colleagues and former colleagues that people are, are questioning that and maybe don't feel so good, feel as good about it as they used to. But they're afraid to say anything or they don't know they don't know what questions to ask or how to push back mm-hmm. in a way that's good for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think as service designers, we're, um, we were, have been looking into tools on how to manage stakeholders within an organization, get everyone on the same level, and uh, make sure uh, they, they see our work as valued and that we uh, can, in every part of the organization, uh, say like, yeah, we will bring you money, we will bring you a, tech, a technological solution. And then at some point, I feel that indeed what you say, we... Uh, we don't question enough anymore what the impact uh, in general on society is. But of course, you're in that context of, of a client, working for a client as an agency I'm talking now. Uh, but how how could we do that? Uh, should we, uh, for example, already question when we take on a new assignment, like, is this already the right thing? Or should we first move into the organization and then try to get somewhere where people in the organization believe that this is important to to ask these uh Question: Do you have some suggestions on that?
2: Um, That's a great question. Uh, You know, uh, uh, Mike Montero's recent um, uh, book—just wait—is it "Destroyed by Design"? I'm probably botching the title. Anyways, his latest book, Mm -hmm. where he he talks about these things, and um, he—you know—he spends a good portion. Uh, you know, raking Twitter and Facebook and Google over the coals. And then at some point in the book, he says, and by the way, if you're working at one of those companies, don't leave. Like, I'm not telling you to leave, Mm -hmm. you know, because we need basically what he says. And what I agree with is like, we need people on the inside. Um, Nothing will change I mean, because, yes, we could all just go work for NGOs. We could just go work for a nonprofit um, and feel better about ourselves. But that won't change things. Um, because they're not where the problem is. <laughs> um, and so as designers, if, if, if we're in one of those organizations, we should stay there um, and we shouldn't shy away from going to work for clients. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's a job and we, we shouldn't feel bad about doing that work or, or working for those companies. But we should recognize that we have a special place um, to advocate for mm-hmm. people um, that are... Uh, that, that those companies are trying to serve. Mm-hmm. and we have a special place I think in helping those companies elevate themselves. So, you know as I mentioned that that group of um, uh, 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 CEOs uh, that redefined the definition of a corporation I think that signals that companies are are recognizing that they need to recognize other forms of value. and so I think the door is open mm-hmm. for um, designers who feel, are worried about this or, or, or want to make a change I think the door is open for them to begin to advocate um, you know the one of the talks that was uh, um, earlier I, I forgot her name um, uh, the one that was the one that was talking about the the Aboriginal work in Australia yeah, the lady from taxi and Ta- yeah. think of her name you know she talked about how uh, you know she said that she would have rearranged all the seats in the room into a ring and how for her the design process is just they just get together and talk mm-hmm. um, it isn't so hierarchical and I think and I guess what that points to to me is that, you know, a lot of this work just takes time and it and we have to keep talking about it. I think people sort of sometimes people get a little exhausted in like, oh, we're talking about inclusion again or oh, we're talking about this thing again. But we have to like these are situations that can't be fixed overnight. They're big, sticky design problems. But those are but those are the problems that we should be excited about. Mm-hmm. But they require continuous discussion and um uh, it requires us it requires that we have the conversation, the hard conversations again and again and again, even if they don't lead to a solution immediately. because eventually what will come out of that are our insights will bubble up as you have those conversations with more and more people. Um, and it's exhausting. Uh, it's hard to do that over and over again. but uh, we it, you know, we just have to recognize that it's going to take a while. and and um, so, I guess to get back to your question, I would just say, you know, uh, uh, you know, recognize that your place in the organization is not just to make pretty things. Your place in the organization um, is to be an advocate and to be an advisor. Uh, in my old company, uh, shout out to Reactor, if you guys are listening. Um, uh, used to say that our uh, our goal as consultants in these organizations was to initially uh, be to, to produce things uh, uh, to be pairs of hands, essentially, which happens a lot. But through that work, by advocating for better things, we would eventually, the goal was to become advisors, trusted advisors. And I would say that that's a place to begin, mm-hmm. you know, do the work, but be vigilant. Mm-hmm. And when you see something happening that seems questionable, say something, fight for it, mm-hmm. uh, fight for it two or three times, Even you may not win. <laughs> and at some point, someone may tell you, well, I'm paying you, so just do it that way. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then you just have a choice to make and 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 no one's going to um, and I think, you know, no, no one's going to hate you if you decide to leave or you decide to do it, but at least you tried. And that's all I think any of the, any, that's all any of us can really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in your talk, you
0: uh, challenged a few things that are considered, uh, normal in, uh, in the design field. Um, one was hiring on, on culture fit and another was, uh, on, on personas, uh, personas, big thing in, in service design, uh, could you explain why
2: are you critical towards personas? Um, it's another one I struggle with because I too, I admit, I use them myself. It, it's a common practice, um, but again, I, I stumbled across research and, and um, uh, writing by other designers that were, that uh, were questioning the practice and were abandoning it. Um, now, at the same time, I, I don't think we can abandon it completely. I mean, there are elements of that. of that I mean. You, you can't profile all 50,000 people you're, wor- you're working for. It's not realistic. Uh, you have to look for trends. You have to look for patterns. And I think that's the power of the persona, right? Is is trying to find those, those common patterns and that allow you to address the needs of multiple people. Um, I think where it gets dangerous is when the persona is developed um, without ever having really Talk to a real person, and and that might be a part I could I could clarify a bit more in the talk. Um, you know, I, I I've worked at my share of places where people made personas based on quantitative demographics that they just pulled out of Google Analytics or something, right? Um, and that's super dangerous. Um, but it also sort of, I think it also depends on the the service you're designing for. I mean, some are going to. The or the outcomes will be more dangerous than others. Um, so I I I, I don't want to say that personas are like the big evil, but I I think there just needs to be more be a more careful approach to them. Um, because again, uh, as I mentioned with hiring practices, for example, um, as designers we have to be mindful of people that we're marginalizing in our work. And um, if you develop a persona. Uh, without a keen understanding of the people you're designing for, you're going to create personas that are like you. And you're going to create personas based on on your internal biases against certain groups of people. And so w- what ends up happening is you, you end up just designing for the wrong people or you make assumptions that are potentially dangerous.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you also talked about, uh, for example, services like Uber, Lyft, uh, Deliveroo, like food delivery mm-hmm. services, there they they probably took the persona of a person sitting at home having enough money to uh, just uh, buy a meal online which arrives 10 minutes later at the door but what about the drivers what yeah. about uh, their uh, rights or redesigning uh, for uh, their social security and that 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 is often forgotten in those uh, in those designs
2: uh, absolutely mm-hmm. yeah again i have never worked for one of those companies so i do want i would want to be totally transparent that mm-hmm. I, Again, I I I uh I, I don't know <laughs> what I, I can't say exactly how uh they designed for those people. And I certainly have never seen uh the side of the app that they use. Well, I mean in a Lyft or an Uber, I guess I have, but it but yes, the the evidence is that um that the focus of the design was on the people who were benefiting from the food delivery or, or getting the ride. Um you know, uh, and and I think, and this is, I think, where service design um, it, uh, is particularly important because, you know, uh, in, in my work, I would have probably focused almost exclusively on the interfaces and things like that. But if you look at the larger service, if you look at the service as a whole, like half of the people involved are being treated very unfairly within that entire service. And I think that that's something worth noting.
1: Yeah, it's actually something that got me thinking already for a couple of months, like those Mm. kind of services are considered successful services. But at the same time, in media, they're now popping up like they're not so good for, for example, different target groups or they're not really following the law. Uh, But then... I was wondering what is like the better way of doing it, isn't it? They, they do move really quickly and, and challenge how uh, things are done in large uh, mm-hmm. hierarchical organizations. Mm-hmm. And they they do manage to um, fulfill a need for a certain group of people in a really uh, short period of time. But then there, of course, is like a lot of what I think negative benefits, which, which they just didn't think about when they were designing the service. And then it becomes important to look at... Uh, All the rest as well. But I feel like we uh, service designers normally try to tackle it all from the beginning Mm. already. And then we also are not moving quick and enough to fulfill a certain need. So I'm not um, sure yet what the the balance or the right direction is. But yeah, yeah, it's just something that got me thinking lately how we as service designers uh, should (laughs) these kind of uh... well. The, the
2: what? Well, well, I want to. I want to touch on something you just said, which is about moving quickly. Uh, I didn't mention this in the talk, but I, I kept reading it quite a lot about what what comes up again and again when you read about these issues. Is you know, there's always been this this philosophy in the tech industry about moving fast and breaking things, right? Fail fast, fail early, um, and I'm starting to wonder whether that's valuable uh, because to in because Failure in the sense of you're a little bit wrong is one thing, but failure that ends up hurting people, which can happen, is, 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 is um, you know, should be frowned upon. And so is that really valuable? Um, and, and again, you know, I, and, and that comes straight out of Silicon Valley. I and mean, that comes out of the, the, cowboy, the tech cowboys in Silicon Valley, right? All those startups that are trying to capture some market before anyone else and, and grow really, really quickly. Um I don't remember where I read this, but there was someone um, it might have been in Synod Bowles' future ethics book. I can't remember, but I was reading something about how um, if you look at if you look at the birth of Silicon Valley, what it was was um, uh, uh, invest you know um, financial investors. i'm I'm losing the word here, but uh, basically, you know, the, the way that startups get funded now. Yeah, like right?
1: angel investors. Angel investors, yeah.
2: right, right. And if you look at the model for how these startups mm-hmm. get funded, um, those favor startups that move really fast because they want to get to their funding quickly. And then they want to get to this funding quickly and then they want their exit strategy. And it's this yeah. this continuous script, uh, Right, right. Yeah. And so in order to meet that need, designers adopted this idea of like, build it quick, right, until it breaks, pivot because the goal is to, is to grow, 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 grow fast, 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 fast. fast get a lot of money and get out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the end result is that's only actually really good for one set of people. Right now in the short term, it does appear to generate value because wow, now I can call a car on my phone without having to deal with taxis or man, I can get my Chinese food in in, in 10 minutes. Right. So we have this, this shiny carrot dangled in front of us to divert us from what's really happening, which is, it's just a way for these investors to make a lot of money really fast, to extract a lot of value quickly. Um, and so I think I do, I am starting, I, I am wondering if, uh, you know, that practice is really valuable anymore. That like like we Maybe we do need to slow down a bit and think a little harder and accept that, that, now, while that's scary, and yes, the longer you spend thinking about something and not doing anything, you're you're generating a lot of risk. But there could be situations in which the end result is actually far more positive, even if it takes longer. And so, it's, I'm interested to hear that you say that service designers tend to take a little bit longer, and that makes sense because you're dealing with a much larger thing than say what I might deal with at Hypergiant, which is, or or as an interactive designer, which is a much more focused product that I'm trying to build really fast. To satisfy shareholder needs, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I wonder, like, if we just need to slow down and think a little more first, right? And, and think about all of the people that are going to be affected, um, and and help our clients understand that taking a little more time might actually be valuable here, and you know, and and helping them get comfortable with that idea.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. But then one uh, challenge I still see is, for example. Uh, service like the uh, Deliveroo uh, food uh, delivery service—I don't know if, if everyone knows it in the world, or is it just a European? Well, we, have, uh, company. we have
2: Postmates and DoorDash. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's
1: probably the same. Yeah, same stuff. I think when they move really quick, they get a lot of people on board, so you create a great opportunity. But then. Then at some point they need to take their responsibility and listen to uh, rights of people, to laws of government, but then they don't do it. So what I was wondering, maybe Mm. it is good to have like a very quick, uh, maybe two, three years, but then uh, they need to get uh, serious and more conscious about uh, what the effects are. They can already see what their effects are because they have been in uh, business testing it out in real life already. But that's what I see now that they just don't do that. For example, in, in Antwerp, you now have a lot of those step-sharing uh, services. Mm. Uh, scooters. Yeah, scooters oh, as well. Right. Yeah, and, those are
2: all over Austin right now too. Yeah,
1: they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then... Apparently their their lifespan is like three months and then they end up at landfills because they're not really made for public uh, use and they're just uh, discarded uh, with really uh, big batteries, which are very bad for the environment. And they get this uh, people thrilled about using them and then they, they leave the world with this problem and they don't really seems like they don't want to fix it anymore. And yeah. then it becomes like a, a big problem that they don't take their responsibility on the, yeah. on those issues.
2: Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really great example of, of what we're talking about because, um, yeah, you, 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 could certainly look at, um, you could, you could certainly infer what their design process looked like in, in, in that service, right? We have a transportation problem in cities where there's too many cars and, but people need to get around quickly Um, Oh, Hey, here's we can just strap a battery pack on this scooter, put an app on it and boom, instantly you mobilize thousands of people overnight. Right. Um, But I think to me, that's a short term solution like that. That's, that's an example of, of, of what I don't think is actually that good of design. It's. It that's sort of that's that's kind of like fast food design, I think, like it's it's immediate payoff. It, it looks it makes us feel really good in the short term. Um, but obviously, the long term impact is really negative. So is that good design? Like <laughs> um, I, and I'm not sure that it is right since de- the design is supposed to look at all the angles and and make sure that, you know, you created something that addresses both short and long term um. Uh, needs uh, there's I actually read something about that like in, in Austin right now the, the screws are everywhere and it's terrible it's 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 like a plague um, and I read something that someone said you know and again I, I can't remember who wrote this uh, so apologies if you're listening to this and I didn't quote you but um, uh, but basically he made a case that you know yes it solves a mobility problem it solves a transportation problem but it's a really cynical approach right? Like why not take all that effort and money that went into those those, those scooters that are going to landfills and fix your local public transit system, right? Like you, you look at a place like New York City, for example, who has that has one of the biggest uh, subway systems in the world. Um, and after living there for three years, at first I was super excited to go there. It's like I'll never have to drive again and and my wife listening is going to laugh about this because she warned me about this. I was super excited because she's from New York. I was super excited because I wasn't going to drive ever again. Um, but then after riding the subway for three years, it was a horrible experience. The, the service is terrible. Um, it, it rarely runs on time. And it's all because there's no money for it. Right, money gets siphoned off the system to pay for political pro, uh, projects. Um, now, not to get political here, but uh, but I think if you took all the money pumped into things like these scooter programs and Lyfts and Ubers or whatever, and put that to an actual uh, problem like that, the in the end result would be a much better long term solution, right? Rather than, but again, I don't think the people that made that scooter service really cared about public transit. It was about growing fast and making a lot of money. So it's it comes down to like, what are your goals in the short and long term, you know, mm-hmm. but, but I agree. It's like, you know, it, it does look good to generate, to generate that massive user base quickly and to generate all that money. But, but again, you have to look at the, the actual impact and, and really question, is that actually good? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, a
0: big challenge. Like I think people tend to think in, in periods of max three years, like a, a career or I mean a, one job position uh, can often last only two, three years in our industry. Yeah. And then I think it can be really difficult to think beyond, uh, those few years. How could we, how could we make it easier for, for designers to think more long-term?
2: Yeah. That's a really great question. And I struggle with that one myself because, you know, I, like any designer, you know uh, I, I'm judged by the quality of my output, right? We know how that is. You got to have the portfolio, and you got to have the big, sexy projects in your portfolio to get the job and to get the respect of your peers. So I think there is something to be done culturally in the design industry. I touched a little bit on it in, in the talk about, um, you know, I, I I didn't go into this part, or I didn't really touch on this part so much. But I think a lot of the problem that we have in the makeup of the, in the, in the culture of the design industry is that we still cling to this idea of, of, of the genius macho designer, right? Um, we, we still, there are, there's the few designers here and there that we put on a pedestal and, and they're amazing because look at all these beautiful things that they made and we all want to be them. Um, and I think that that hero worship is really, really damaging. I think it's really negative. Um, we, if we really believe ourselves to be human centered, then we should actually be we shouldn't be looking at ourselves. We should be looking elsewhere for validation and we should be redefining, we should redefine what it means to be a successful designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I have been a design director for just a few years. And now that I'm in this leadership position, I've had to think hard about this because um, I, you know, I'm no longer supposed to be producing things on my own. I'm supposed to be leading a team of people. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I've just been doing the work for all these years. But, but what it's made me think about is, is uh, you know, how, how do I... what part do I play in redefining the value on my team? So it's not about rewarding the one hero, but actually recognizing how that one hero is actually hurting your culture, right? Is actually hurting your design culture because design's only better if everyone's involved and everyone feels supported. So we have to create these safe spaces where people feel okay with failing in the short term, feel okay with trying something maybe that doesn't pan out, but leads to a, a bigger insight later on and being okay with working for a few months and having really not having a sexy case study to show for it, but, 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 but recognizing that the value of what they learned is where, um, uh, is, is, uh, you can't put a, it's something you can't put a price on. Um, but again, I, I struggle with that too. And I think it's a, I think it's a bigger cultural issue within our industry that we, we have to grapple with, I think. Yeah.
1: Maybe think like they say, good design is invisible. Maybe it's also a good designer is invisible. That right. we should try to uh, be more uh, let the teams in the organization shine and do the work, but then still at the same time make sure that we don't, uh, that we still let people see what our value are because I see a bit of a. Yeah, A struggle in balancing yeah. those two because, of yeah. course, we. And then I'm not talking about one designer, but even design teams and companies that we, of course, still want that uh, clients see uh, how we help uh, them yeah. and other clients. So that, and then sometimes you just need the hero cases to uh, put yeah. it on the agenda. But I think that would be an uh, an interesting. Uh, Thing to to achieve to become more invisible in an uh, organization through letting other people uh, shine.
2: Yeah, and I and I yeah, I think that's great. I, I totally agree with that. And and I think another way to think about it is, it's how do you make how do I make myself invisible this moment to lift somebody else up, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I think often in our industry, like as I mentioned in the talk, you know, our let's be honest, our industry is largely white and male. Um, and I sometimes feel uncomfortable talking about these issues because i am white and male and i have this privileged position in society and in my industry um but again shout out to my wife reminds me every day though that my job then is to use my position to elevate other people to give them a voice right so my job ironically as a design director is to make myself invisible to shine a light on the successes of people on my team that don't have a voice so if there's people on my team who are doing great work but because of their position, they're not getting recognition. Then my job as their colleague, not even as a design director, but just as another designer, if I care about people, if I'm really a human centered designer, is to give them the recognition they need. And also to your to your point, uh, one of the points you made is um, re, uh, uh, recontextualize the uh, the outcome to be a team effort. To constantly say we. It's about we, not not me. Uh, because, again, uh, relationships, any healthy relationship is a give and take, right? And, and it, healthy relationships are people who are being honest with one another lift in, and, and giving credit to people when it is due, not co-opting their ideas, which I think you see happen quite a lot in design. And let's be honest, uh, even the best designers in the world steal from other people and claim it as their own. We we all do that. Well, you know what happens, right? So if we're just honest about that, just give credit to someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's actually going to make the work better, Mm -hmm. right? Take that risk; it's worth it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're describing a very
0: healthy culture, I think, if uh, a place where everybody uh, lifts each other up instead of focusing on their own achievements. But that also brings me back to your uh, comment you made about culture fit. Like you need to be careful to hire, yeah also the people who are different from you. Yeah. But here I struggle a bit. I want to hire people uh, who do lift other people up. So mm-hmm. that's something you know, I oh, would I focus see. on. Yeah. But at the same time, I do see that we are a very homogenous team mm-hmm. of all very kind and uh, helpful people, mm-hmm. but still homogenous. So then yeah. I struggle with... Uh, I, 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 I'm very aware I need diversity in the team. Yeah. I'm not talking about... Color necessarily mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. male, female, but more mm-hmm. personality-wise, right? Different right. challenge I'm struggling with. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: no, and and, and again, I, I don't have. I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I was focusing a bit more on on you know gender identity and and race and that sort of thing with that, but but it's. But I I think you make a really good point also about that that diversity does have to include, I, I think, well, I, I think I mentioned it briefly, but yeah, it, it does have to include, um, um, what you said differences, uh, um, um, different approaches, different, different mindsets, different personalities. Right. Um, and, and I, but I think it's okay. Um, I, I think that you're going to, I think you're going to run into situations where you're going to hire someone maybe who, um, uh, Struggles a bit more with with what we're talking about, right? That um, because they've had to their entire careers. I mean, a great example is if you look at people um, who are not white and male, they've had to spend their entire careers fighting hard for their place in the world, um, and they may come into your organization and shine the light on themselves a little bit um, because they've had to. They've had to be better than everyone else, right? Because it's the only way they've been able to survive. Uh, and I think if you're in a uh, position of privilege. You have to recognize that and be and understand that. Uh, it's not to say that you have to be that way yourself, um, and and you, you should certainly do something if it becomes toxic. But uh, but again, I, but again, that's just diversity to me. That's just recognizing that everyone is coming to this from different positions. They're not, and they're not all coming from. Uh, they're not all coming from the same comfort level. You are, um, you know. I, I think uh, something that, that 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 like in in hiring practices, something we have to be mindful of is that. Um, uh, that, you know, there, there are people that have to overcompensate a bit, right? And uh, and what you'll find is, or, or what you should look to is how people react to that. How do they react to that person being aggressive um, and confident versus this other person being aggressive and confident? I think what you often will find is that if they're white and male, oh, that's good, they're doing it. But if they're not, if they're a woman, a person of color, being aggressive and confident is viewed as a negative, negative. and that that should be a sign for you, right? And I think that that's where it gets tricky for me. You know, um, is, in, is in our perception of people and what confidence looks like. Um, I think that you know, one one way to deal with that is is uh, you know, uh, on your team is to not feel personally threatened. I think it's what happens a lot is that, you know, people that are in a position of privilege feel personally threatened when someone who is not in a position of privilege acts like them because they've had to, uh, and you should actually support that. That's, that's, that's something you should support because, uh, you know, that, that's a way to correct that imbalance. Um, Again, I have to admit, I'm not an expert on that at all. I, 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 I um, I my, my knowledge of you know sociology and culture and and race issues is um, not the best, but that's my basic understanding of from what I've read about it. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. I think uh, one of our criteria when we hire people is uh, is it a good fit with the team, and mm-hmm. think that is something. Uh, um, I want to uh, think about indeed uh, what is a good fit to the team and that we maybe now uh, ourselves are also taking it a bit too small and mm-hmm. looking at the same people. So I, th- I see that as a challenge after the conference to uh, yeah. to look into that. So are you looking forward to something at the conference? Did you uh, subscribe for a workshop or are you uh, going to a specific talk that you are uh, really looking forward to?
2: I have to admit, uh, I haven't had a chance to. <laughs> I, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I um, in the middle of preparing for my talk, I, uh, I, I was moving cross country from New York to Austin with an eight-month-old son and changing jobs, so um, uh, my I didn't have as much time as I had hoped, but. What I am hopeful for, though, and what I what I have seen, um, I am looking forward to a full day of just going to talks, and not having to worry about my own. <laughs> but one thing I am hopeful ho- hopeful about that I, I I've noticed i tr- I've seen a trend of in um, this conference uh, is are the number of talks about things like co design and collaboration and um can and, and 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 being concerned about these issues that I uh, that I talked about today. Um, and so that that gives me hope, and um, and also I, I'm just looking forward to learning more about service design itself. Again, I'm not a self-described service designer, and um, I, and so I'm I'm really interested to see where the overlaps are with my work, and um, to see, um, uh, to learn more about um, service designers' approach to these issues of quality and and fairness and and ethics and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah
0: that's indeed a, a good good trend to see uh, i think other people have commented on on noticing this as well here at the conference um also have a question from an ai uh point of mm. view um how do you see uh ai can really yeah be a part in in designing services mm-hmm. or as a tool for service designers
2: oh that's a that's a big tough one um you know uh I, I just, you know, I, I recently started Hypergiant, which uh, focuses on um, AI and, and machine learning solutions. And the, you know, what immediately struck me is how hard it is to define what AI is. <laughs> um, even people at my company uh, uh, work hard to to come up with a, a clear definition. So, uh, you know, the way they talk about it and what I th- find interesting is that, you know, all, all forms of software are AI. Um, basically artificial intelligence, hopefully, sorry, John, if I don't get this definition correct, but someone said it beautifully that, um, that basically, uh, artificial intelligence is about making decisions from data. So essentially all software does this where, it, where it changes a bit is in machine learning, right, where a system can adapt a bit more. Um, but to get back to your question, I think, um, for me, one of uh, something that is is going to face designer or is facing designers now with AI is it actually means we need to do more work in ethics. Uh, their AI, uh, the, the dangers of AI are not the Terminator movie or that machines are going to take over. The danger is in AI is that it, with AI, we have a risk that the data sets we use, uh, to gain insights from using AI carry our biases. They carry with them. They are embedded with human issues. And so, a lot of work needs to be done to ensure that um, the, the the data isn't biased against people. Um, to make sure that we are implementing these tools in a way that is safe—not um, safe from like you know a physical standpoint, but um, isn't going to do more harm than good. So, I think there's some work to do uh, there on what does that mean? Like, how do designers have a role in placing safeguards around these things? Because, let's be honest, one of the powers of AI is is its ability to find trends. That we cannot see, so that means it's going to be hard for us to understand how to put controls and limits on these things because we just can't see these patterns. We're we we're, we're, in, we're, it's, uh, we're incapable of, of seeing that. So, but I, I think the power, um, I think I think the the great benefit of AI will be in that it will free humans up to do what humans do best. Um, AI will free us from repetitive tasks or it'll free us from Monday tasks and allow us to focus on uh, the, the more um, uh, emotional and social issues that we are best at dealing. I mean, a machine will never really understand uh, human communication. Now, a machine can speed it up and can help us focus on that a bit more, but I think it's actually going to make us focus on human or it's going to free us to focus on real human issues more. Uh, and I think jobs of the future... Uh, uh, that are uh, impacted by AI will be ones in which humans will focus on the humanities again. We'll go back to focusing on the things on on art and communication and human relationships and uh, and and I think that's the beauty of it is it will allow us to to go there again. Um, and the the mundane repetitive tasks will be handled by a machine. Um, and so yes, it will take jobs and it will reduce jobs in certain areas. But I think in the long run it'll it'll be better because humans will. I think we'll find more rewarding work um, as a result of it. Um, I I think, (laughs) again, uh, this is very distant futurist uh, thought, but that's my distinct hope Mm -hmm. is what it uh, as to what it might look like yeah, yeah. well
0: i, I I'm, I'm happy that it's uh, somebody like you who is uh, designing uh, these uh, ai technologies and yeah. uh, and where they go i mean, in the end it's the responsibility of us designers to, to steer these technologies and developments in a good way absolutely uh, and uh, so yeah Okay, I think it was a really, really interesting uh, conversation. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time here at, uh, at the conference. Uh, and yeah, I enjoy uh, enjoying the conference yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time and I enjoy the conversation as well.
1: Great, thank you. Then we can now go, I think, to the award-winning uh, ceremony and see who, uh, who are the winners of, uh, of this year. Thank you.
0: Thank you. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight, by Hydrogen C featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.